recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Max lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Max lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast, folks. Um, just to let you know that Restoring Darkness is interviewing four co-hosts of the show. So if you're interested, email info at nail.org. That's I-N-F-O at N-A-I-L-D dot org. On today's show, we have Remy Boucher. He's a scientific coordinator of Mont Megantic International Dark Sky Reserve. He's a part, And he's also one of the park wardens at Mont Megantic National Park. Scientific coordinator um, for Mont Megantic, Remy Boucher has been, a pa- has been passionate about the starry sky and the night experience for many years. With a degree in molecular biology, his many years working under the stars for the park allowed him to acquire a great expertise in light pollution and the reduction of its negative effects. In addition to giving numerous lectures and training on the subject, he continues to educate the public, uh, visiting, uh, the public that visits the park and received the Dark Sky Defender Award from the International Dark Sky Association in 2015. Remy was part of the committee designing the National Standard Against Light Pollution in the province of Quebec, and he is currently leading the efforts in monitoring of light pollution and reducing light pollution in other national parks in Quebec. Remy, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. What is it... Do, do you find that people are encountering the consequences and the idea of light pollution when you first meet them or are people already coming to you primed uh i think both um i think for a a lot of people um well of course since i I work in astronomy at the mount megantic and and often people will will come and reach to us about uh, some problems um but yeah when i especially when i was doing more uh, more work at the uh, education part of the, the national park and where I was teaching about light pollution. Uh, it's like, well, in the, the, the early two, uh, 2000s, um, the, the people were looking at us a, a bit strangely, uh, talking about uh, night pollution and light pollution and all this. Uh, but I've seen, I've seen the awareness growing year after year. Uh, and nowadays, I think most people do understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Do you think that um, the people that that are already sort of primed or, 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 you know, the astronomer crowd or people that are, are understand the issue, do they believe that light pollution is actually pollution or they are they still considering it like a metaphor? 
Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it should be recognized as pollution. Uh, we do have like the, the good part that it's a, a pollution that we can reduce uh, its impacts uh, and it, uh, it shows very rapidly. I mean, it, it goes at the speed of light. Uh, <laughs> so th this, is, this is really an advantage for us uh, compared to other kind of pollution. But um, yeah, I think there's maybe not the ones that are prime, but the, the, the one that are not. I think a lot of people still don't uh, don't realize all the impacts. Uh, they think about astronomy, uh, of course, so they can understand that you're missing some some stars or maybe galaxies and uh, deep sky objects. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think it, it needs to be pretty strong to so that people can realize what they're losing. The um, I would consider you an environmentalist. So like if I, you know, I wouldn't consider myself that because I don't practice in that, in the field. I, you know, I'm a podcaster mm -hmm. in that and I own a lighting company, but, um, do, you know, the, the, does the plastics in the ocean and the global warming crowd, do you think they specifically, it would be helpful if we began educating them that light pollution is not a metaphor? Yeah. 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 Uh, and I heard that on one of your previous episodes, uh, the, 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 the yeah, I think it, it needs to be put into uh, into the, the the grand scheme of the uh, environment protection. I think uh, the the, in, the night environment needs to be uh, to be thought about, uh, and, and I especially liked the um, uh, what they did for the national parks in the United States uh, when they they came with this great phrase that half the park is after dark. I mean, mm, we're so used yeah. to to sleep at night and to not experience night. We live most of us live in cities, and so we don't have the the true experience of night. And it's harder for people to understand that they need to protect this. Um, I often come back to um, a quote from uh, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, environmentalist, and, uh, um, who, who told, we cannot win this battle to save species and environments without forging an emotional bond between ourselves and nature as well. For we will not fight to save what we do not love. So this for me, mm. um, yeah, it, it resonates very strongly and it, it it shows that we need to to care about those things to uh, well to save them. Yeah. So, would you agree though that largely most environmentalists are not a, are have not taken this as a serious environmental issue, or that they're just unaware of it? Would you agree that that's true? Is that a true statement? I think most. Of, yeah, I think most of them are, might not be aware yet, uh, but seeing like just the science community that uh, are doing research on uh, on light pollution i've seen it grow uh, year after year uh, in conferences like the artificial light at night conference mm. uh it, it really grew and and now a lot of the movement is uh, is people in the environment so yeah and you you basically you take a species uh, a living species you look if there's an an impact with uh, uh, artificial light and well basically most of the time you you find something so hmm. uh, i think we're just on the on the beginning of this so so yeah some of us that are working on this for many years we might have uh, <laughs> we might see it as they uh, maybe they, they don't realize um, fast enough but i think it's uh, it, it's growing yeah the so the lighting industry um has in the past, I think it's beginning to embrace this more and more similar to the environmental movement that we're starting to see industry alignment and, and, and coalescence around the issue. Um, what I want to ask you as a practitioner, so you're an environmentalist, but you're also in the field, you're also making decisions. 
Do mm-hmm. we have all the technology we need as a lighting, as an industry to solve this problem in all applications? Well, I think we do have a great set of tools. Uh, I mean, we don't know what the future is going to bring us. Uh, so, um, and it changed a lot in the last like 12, 15 years. Uh, we've seen it with, uh, with LEDs, but so LED came with some problems with the, the, the white lights and the, the, the blue rich light. But it also came with solutions. Uh, we, we have more controls to where to direct the light, so this is good. Uh, we have better efficiency, uh, which we need to be careful about, so not to use it to, to overlit uh, areas and to do it cheaply. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think new technology can bring things, but I think we already do have a lot of tools in our tool bank to, to yeah, mitigate light pollution, to, but to light efficiently and on, at the at the right place at the right time for me light pollution is not because some people will see light pollution as um, uh, like as soon as you bring artificial light into the natural environment it is light pollution so which is true it i mean it's not natural um and it can has its uh, adverse effect but i think as humans we do need some artificial light uh we can the the moon is not always there uh we we are active at night Uh, some of us uh, work at night and and we need more lights because they might be uh, working at a a warehouse or or anything and we do need some amount of light for for some security but yeah i think we do have um, uh, measures to to use the light uh, on the right way and so it's it's when it's um you know, just too much, uh, uh, too much light in the, uh, the night environment. And when it's not well controlled, uh, when it should be controlled, I think this is when we can talk about light pollution. Do you, so there's often a lot of discussion from the lighting industry angle about the advance and increases in effectiveness and technology and wireless remote lighting controls. Mm-hmm. And there's a big debate about how to then apply this technology into the built environment. And I've often pointed out on the other show, we do get a grip on lighting, that the most obvious and easiest use case for controls is outdoors, Um, Mm -hmm. especially with municipalities where you can afford to have someone controlling the lighting for different applications. Um, How have you guys at Montmagantic employed controls and and, and have you used any Bluetooth or anything to uh, monitor and and dim and perhaps aux sensors or changing, you know, lowering Kelvin temperatures or have you employed that technology in your practice so far? Yeah, good good question. Uh, I think controls are part of the solution. I think that for now um, and um, from what I've seen and what we've gathered as information, well, we don't use them like for uh, public streetlights. Uh, there's a few problems with uh, with this for now. It's that most of the the guidelines or the the, the, the light levels uh, that are um, specified in, into mm-hmm. like for the uh, the IES, um, a lot of municipalities don't want to go below those. Uh, they, they fear maybe to have some accidents and that that it could be blamed on, on the light levels and things like that. So oftentimes they will want to be at those light levels and they don't want to reduce them. Um, they can do it a little bit. And uh, I know that Montreal has uh, lowered its uh, light levels when it changed for um, uh, LED lighting in the, in the last few years. I think they've lowered them by like 30%, but they are still playing in the field of uh, uh, like the, uh, what you get from Scotopic and Photopic vision and playing with the, the, the spectrum. So. Um, on this part, not a lot of uh, municipalities want to go down 
like late in, at night um, or to use motion sensor and things, uh, things like this. And the other big problem that we've seen is that, well, a lot of those controls can be expensive, especially for small cities where they have like, mm -hmm. like 50, 100 or 200 uh, streetlights. Uh, that can be prohibitive. But there's also the problem that the, the way here in Quebec that the, uh, the energy bill is made for the municipalities, they will pay by, uh, by streetlights. So you take the, the wattage of each streetlights and there's a calculus for the number of hours and, the, uh, and basically the, the, yeah, the, the watts and how long they're used. And so it, right now it's not ready for, um, for controls. So that's sad because it's a great way to reduce light pollution. I mean, if you can lower the light amount by 50%, you automatically reduce light pollution mm -hmm. by 50%. So it's very easy to, and you, you know, save energy at 50% and you exactly, reduce your energy consumption exactly. by 50%. Yes, exactly. Um, but, but for municipalities, they need to see this on their electricity bill, which is not the case right now. So mm. this, this for us, uh, locally needs to be uh, changed. That's interesting. I want to talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. the government, but I don't want to move away from the safety, you know, issue. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. We do need electric artificial light at night. It, it, it's imperative mm -hmm. that cities be illuminated and, and that we can, people can find their way around. I think what I've noticed, the Nailed Committee, uh, when they met, we had a committee of, of, of um, Nailed members that met and discussed mm -hmm. various issues on, on light pollution. What we have seen, what the committee had seen, which was really interesting, was that while the light level issue hasn't been addressed, like maximum light levels haven't been applied everywhere, or you know they haven't reduced the overall illumination on the on the on the street and the sidewalk, what they have noticed is that lower Kelvin temperatures have been moving their way into specs, which I think is is part of the solution. So what we're seeing is that mm -hmm. you know towns, coastal towns. Um, various places have been in introducing these lower lower Kelvin temperatures. Does lower Kelvin temperature alone, does that reduce light pollution? Yeah, it does. It does, but you do need to go uh, well below what is mostly used. Uh, we've seen in the last decade, like a lot of uh, mostly 4,000 Kelvin LEDs. Mm -hmm. Before that, a bit more uh, higher even. Uh, yep. If we think about the, the first cities that, that did the, the changes. And we've seen those numbers lowering. We've seen, we now see more 3,000 Kelvins. Uh, and ourselves at Mount Megansic, we are working very hard on this. Um, and you have to have like kind of the historical perspective that we have. We were the first international Sky reserve uh, certified by IDA. So we've been certified since 2007. And at that time, what we did is change a, a lot of uh, white lights, which were um, metallolite, most of them. Uh, and sodium lights, but with a cobra head with big lenses uh, underneath. And we changed them to full cutoff HPS, so uh, high pressure sodium, um, to reduce the amount of blue light. And so when the LED came on the market and was really flooding the market um, with 4,000 4, Kelvins and 5,000 Kelvins, uh, yeah, we, we saw that as a, a big threat. And what we found, and this is by partnering with the industry, uh, with manufacturers, they came up with a PC amber LED, which is phosphor converted mm -hmm. amber LED. So they have a CCT a color temperature of about 1800 Kelvins. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's that's pretty low. It, it is, it does look very similar to um, high pressure sodium. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it does have a better color rendering index mm -hmm. than um, what we like call the true visual amber, acuity, what The visual acuity yeah. of low Kelvin temperature LEDs is higher than it would be on HPS or LPS systems. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it so, it so that's it, a big plus. And yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, no, carry on. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. So the the the, the visual equity is better. Um, and the um, the efficacy, the, the the luminous efficacy, so uh, the amount of uh, lumen that you get for each watt has been increasing also. So it will always be lower than white LED, and this is something that we mm -hmm. have to, you know, to, to to put a lot of effort and, and to fight uh, <laughs> to to just balance the the, uh, the pros and cons. Um, so it, it's always going to be, be uh, lower than white LED, but it's a lot better uh, than a true amber LED. Uh, and when you're using like lumen for lumen, uh, PC amber LED, you you do have lower light pollution than HPS, a little bit lower, not not a lot like uh, what um, low pressure sodium or our true amber can give you, but it is lower. And if you lower the lumens, if you have uh, better aiming with your optics and things like that. Uh, you can really reduce light pollution. And this is what we've been working on for the last, I'd say, almost 10 years now. Uh, a lot of the municipalities around are now uh, lit either completely or partly with uh, PC Amber LED. Wow, that's fantastic. And let me ask you a little bit about the government of Quebec, because I'm sure there's a role mm -hmm. for them in all this, right? I mean, when we looked at, um, I mean, with, there's, there's the ordinance side of it, which is, you know, yeah. the law or the regulation surrounding the outdoor lighting, but there's also the support of the province. So let, let's talk first about how, what was Quebec, how did you con convince the province to get on board with the Dark Sky Reserve and perhaps, fund, I don't know if they funded it at all or if they offered some money. And then do you do you see them now as an ally in this cause or do they still need to be convinced? Is that a fair question? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll try to answer it uh, <laughs> politically correct. No, it, it just, uh, it, it, it did um, change through the years. Um, when we started the project for the, the Dark Sky Reserve, and I was not personally involved at that time, I came later. Uh, I was working already at Mount Megantic, but uh, as an astronomy guide. Um, but yeah, at that time, Hydro-Québec, which is the energy provider in the province, uh, was really on board with it because there was a lot of um, light efficiency um, and a, a big part of the sponsorships that helped to, to pay uh, a big part of the, the, the light changes, either for public light, because we often talk about like the street lights, uh, but we change more uh, private sources uh, of, li of light than, than public sources. So uh, more than 3,000 uh, in total. And um, so Hydro-Québec was a big part of this. Uh, but then, well, after the, uh, the certification and maybe like five years later, uh, this is when the LED came on board and Hydro-Québec was now more interested into uh, sponsoring uh, the installation of white LEDs because of their efficacy. Um, and so at that time, we, well, our, our own municipalities could not benefit from, from those uh, sponsorships. Um, and um, yeah, so we, we had to, to, to play with this. And later, for something you mentioned in my bio, uh, there are now, uh, there's a, a, I'm not sure for the word in English, but it's a, a norm, so like a norm or guidelines um, mm. that is a national like, guideline for, for Quebec. So it's not a law, um, but uh, it does show what should be done. Um, and we, we were a big committee, uh, but the initiative was from the, um, the uh, Quebec chapter of uh, International Dust Association. Uh, but a lot of uh, uh, other parts of the government were there. Hydro-Québec was there, uh, the uh, MTQ, which is the uh, Ministry of Transportation of Quebec. Mm -hmm. 
the um, Montreal, uh, Montreal city. And there was also representatives, us, because we had a, a great expertise on, uh, on this with our own regulations. So, um, so yeah, we come up with something, I think, which is good. Uh, but I do see it a bit complicated. And this is something I don't like with the regulations and guidelines. It's when they get too technical. Mm. I think we lose too many people with this. Which is why I want to talk about your website, because I was preparing for the interview today, and I, and I went to the um, uh, org. And yeah. if you click on the lighting section of that website, there's very simple, easy to understand education. I want to know, first of all, who designed that? Who came up with that? Because that's brilliant. <laughs> I did. I did. That's me. Thanks. <laughs> oh, no, I, I just love it because we're actually embarking uh, our association nailed on a dark sky educational program. And I saw that and it's just so clearly laid out. And, you know, the basics of it, if you want to understand it. And so if anyone's listening mm-hmm. to this, if you want to, if you want a five minute tutorial on how to do a dark sky um, you know, what kind of fixtures in that? You can just go to um, MegantecDarkSky.org. Uh, let you. me ask you about the citizens uh, around the park, the, the, the municipalities. Uh, that's mm-hmm. advocacy work is what, you know, we would call it from the nail perspective. Um, when did the advocacy towards the actual citizens living in the region start? And then how was the uptake? Was it slow, fast? Are they all on board now? Uh, what's the What's the the feeling from the citizens in the area? Uh, yeah, well, we, um, this is also part of the, when I was not working for the Dark Sky Reserve, so I do know a little bit how, how it went, but I don't have like the, the precise details, but the project started in 2003. And um, yeah, one of the first part of this, and we devised the project in like three main axes, is the, um, yeah, the awareness, raising awareness uh, throughout the population, but also the elected officials, uh, the municipalities, um, and it went pretty well. We we really had someone uh, working on the project, which is uh, Chloé Legris. She was the, I'd say one of the two main architects of the project with uh, Pierre Goulet, which was the, the National Parks Director at the time. And they really worked very hard. They, they went to every uh, city council for like the, the 34 or 35 municipalities, uh, the biggest one being Sherbrooke, which is a 200,000 uh, citizen uh, city. And uh, yeah, so a lot of, of work with this. Um, and I, Chloe w- was very uh, charismatic. Um, I think she, she brought like good arguments showing that it's a win-win situation for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just like to, to pay for new lights. And they, they got, as I said, uh, some, some uh, sponsorship from Hydro-Québec and, and others. Uh, to, like, so people could have a return on investment in like one or two years sometime. Uh, which is incredibly uh, short. Um, so yeah, it, it went very well, and, and that was a great start. And I think, I think, yeah, it just that we realized maybe five or six years later that um, it's not everything to just uh, build it. You have to <laughs> to to repair it uh, and to to work all the time because the farther you get from Mount Megantic, which uh, there's a, a um, astronomical observatory at the summit, so it's well known mm-hmm. in Quebec. It's like the it's the largest um, telescope uh, here in Quebec, and it's one of the largest one on the East Coast also. But it's, uh, so it's well known for astronomy. And the farther you get from Mount Megansic, well, the less people will be aware, or they don't realize that their own light in their backyard can affect the, the dark skies of the region. They, they don't realize that you, 
you don't need to be like five kilometers from the mountain, but even at 50 kilometers from the mountain, we can easily see those light source uh, from the top. And the, hmm. the way that the geography is, is around Mount Megantic, you have this mountain and you have very uh, like large plains around it. Uh, you, can, you can see the other mountains behind Sherbrooke, which are maybe 75 kilometers away. Um, so, and we are lucky for the, the, the United States part. Uh, just on the other side of the border, because we're maybe like 25 or 30 minute drive from the border of Maine, New Hampshire and Vermont. And uh, there's not a lot of people around there. So there's not a uh, there's very, very dark skies on the southern and eastern border. Hmm. But yeah, municipalities came on board and I think we have really seen it grow. But there's really a sense of pride uh, with the dark skies now. Hmm. And uh, they, they really want to protect it now that we have it. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's something that they are very pride, uh, proud of and that they want to protect. You know, that Gucci suit phenomenon, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's something very powerful. <laughs> no, it, you know, there's, it, people should understand this, that humans, you know, they're motivated by money, but oftentimes they're, you know, a group of people will be more motivated by prestige and who they are mm. as a as yeah. a um a region or whatever and if the citizenry's on board and they're feeling good about this it will accelerate and accelerate faster than yeah. any amount of ROI or money can can convince them um mm -hmm. on your site there's an area that talks about measurement and you have the different yeah. how you measure the 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 light pollution can you talk a little bit about those tools <laughs> and you know what you use to measure other than your own sure. eyes and experience yeah sure sure yeah that's the geeky part that's the part that i love um, <laughs> i come from a scientific background and uh, this is a way for me to do a little science um we we have different ways uh, i think for the last five or six years we have what we call a sky quality meter i think it's one of the most well-known instruments in the astronomy and light pollution uh, uh, spheres um you basically aim the little instrument at the at the sky. Normally, we we, we take the zenith, so the, the the upper part of the sky, and we just measure the, the numbers. But what we found, and we were just trying, I, I remember like in 2009 or 10, to, to have some measurements, and we're just aiming the thing and not taking care uh, of the, the phase of the moon, if it was there, if there was some clouds. or And these things can change a lot um, uh, for the, the how bright the sky is or how, or how dark it is. Um, so we've installed a uh, sky quality meter, but that is running and is taking a measurement, I think, every 45 seconds or every minute. Uh, so we have measurements for the, yeah, the last like five years at the summit of Mount Megantic. And uh, this is good, but I think the analysis of those measurements are, are a little bit tricky um, because you can take the darkest measurements. But what you find is that when there's clouds in a very dark region, the clouds will be darker than when you have the stars. And it's the opposite if you're near a city because the clouds will reflect the light pollution from the city. Mm. Um, so you cannot mm. say, oh, what is the darkest measurement that, that you can get? That's that's just like, well, it's, I mean, there's fog or or there's a big cloud or anything. So, so you have to get into statistics and try to remove the influence from the sun when it's not uh, below enough at the horizon, uh, when the moon is there. Um, when the Milky Way goes too high in the sky and goes in front of the, the field of view of your instrument, mm. um, zodiacal light, uh, you can have the, yeah, a lot of uh, those things that will be natural light so that 
you don't want to just see the variation of natural light. You want to see the if light pollution is increasing. That I mean, that's the main thing I want to to know. Yes, I can know how dark it is, but I do have a, an idea. But um, I want to see how it changed year over year. Uh, is it getting worse or not? And that's especially tricky for us at Mount Megantic because there is so uh, almost no light pollution on Zenith, like high in the sky. We do have light domes on the horizon, but high in the sky, you don't see much light pollution or not at all. And so you're measuring mostly, well, <laughs> natural changes. Um, so I hope I won't, <laughs> I won't measure light pollution too much. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the, my big problem. And we've, um, since a few years, I don't remember, I think it's like three years ago, we bought what is called a, a sky quality camera. So it's made in uh, Slovenia, very small company. But this, this one is very nice because I'm used to taking pictures. Um, I've, I've been doing night sky pictures for like 10 years. And, um, and so I like to go outside under the stars and do pictures. And I do it less and less, unfortunately, uh, uh, since a few years. But... I do take the sky quality camera and it's basically a DSLR. So uh, normal uh, digital camera with a fisheye lens and you aim it to the zenith and you can see the, the whole from the horizon uh, and the whole mm. sky 360 degree. And with the software that comes with the camera, you get this very easy to understand uh, scale with colors and you can uh, point different part of the skies, uh, extract some measurements. And so you can go on many places. I, I've taken measurements from the summit of Mount Megantic to Montreal at the center of Montreal uh, mm. in Sherbrooke, see the effects uh, when there's clouds, when there's snow on the ground and all those things. So I really, really like this instrument, the sky quality camera. And right now, um, what I'm working on is installing what we call TESS photometers, T-E-S-S. They are mm -hmm. very similar to sky quality uh, meters. Um, but they, they are working, um, autonomously. So you install them, you need to have Wi-Fi, and you need to have a power supply and they send their data automatically. So one measurement every minute, um, it's, uh, it's very nice. Everybody can access those, uh, those measurements, uh, because it's open access on the internet. Uh, so I can see what is measured in Namibia or New Zealand or in Spain, where there's a lot, because it started there with the. Uh, stars for all program and um, and I'm installing those into national parks here in Quebec so we have uh, around 25 national parks in Quebec and mm -hmm. we want to have light pollution monitoring um, across all the national parks so this is a, a big project I'm working on right now the test meter and the sky quality mm -hmm. camera how much training is involved in um, using these devices could is it some is it someone that needs to be a professional or could you know um people in the industry be trained to use these oh, i think anybody could be used uh, uh, trained to use them um but you do have to like any in, uh, scientific instruments you have to understand uh i think a little bit what can affect the, the data it's just like a lux meter it seems very easy in principle to use a lux meter um you can take the the, the 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 measurements i mean anywhere in a parking lot but mm. you have to realize if you're wearing a, a white shirt that it can affect the measurement if you're <laughs> you're too close because you're so even a simple instruments you have to understand like how it can um, it can change the measurements uh and also you have to understand what it can reveal you because the sky quality camera is made to 
see the sky glow um, and uh, or the, the the test photometer. So for someone very like in the lighting industry, I think that might not be the more appropriate. Something more like a candelometer or a lux meter is more uh, or or uh, a spectrometer where you can have the the CCT and things like that. Uh, this is, I think, more appropriate for someone in the lighting industry. But for someone more on the conservation, um, the environmentalist, I think um, SQMs, tests, and uh, and the sky quality camera can, yeah, they, you can learn. I I did it by myself for the sky high quality camera, but that was after the training. I just I was too excited to uh, start shooting and experimenting with the program. But uh, yeah, I um, <laughs> I'm supposed to have a training someday. <laughs> <laughs> So my final question for you then for today, we spoke for half an hour almost, um, would be, is it improving? So all this measuring, I know you yeah. said it's tough. It's tough to really, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a statistical adventure, right? Yeah. But is the, is, are you noticing an improvement in and around the park? Good question. Um, we were really lacking measurements, and this is uh, this is why I've, I've spent so much time in the last years to try to improve what we were doing. But we were lacking measurements when we did the dark sky research, when we created it. So it would have been nice to have before and after and and see like the, the effect. We there was some paper uh, made uh, in particular by Martin Aubé, which is uh, one of the well-known scientists in the uh, uh, light pollution um, field, is working here in Sherbrooke. Uh, and with satellite data, they could approximate maybe like a 30 or 35% reduction in light pollution wow. in the area. And uh, yeah, and this is from satellite data. I think, honestly, it might have been even bigger than this. And what we've, we've luckily been able to do is in 2007, um, someone from the, uh, the National Park Service of the United States, uh, which do have a great camera system uh, to take all sky measurements, they took a measurement uh, beside the, the Mount Magnetic Observatory. And so you, they, they could quantify the amount of artificial light. Uh, you could see the light domes. And we were fortunate enough that five years later, I know, uh, 10 years later, so in 2017, um, someone else, uh, part of their team uh, working at the Colorado University, uh, came again to Mount Magnetic. And it was almost day for day. It was like in the, around... September 20th, uh, almost the same uh, hour of the night and with very similar um, weather condition. So very clear conditions, very good. And they, they did measurements again. And what we could see is a, a slight decrease in light pollution. That might be just be a difference in the weather. But what we could at least say is that it was incredibly similar to what we had 10 years before. And this for me is a great success because during that time, during those 10 years, the population grew by 12% of the dark sky wow. reserve. So you have wow. this increase in, in, in population. Uh, we know that it's so much easier to put a new light than to remove uh, lights. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite more rare that we, we take out lights. We uh, normally put uh, more of them. Um, and so, yeah, to keep, at, keep this dark skies that we have, uh, this is a... Yeah, that was great for us. And we hope we can do this again. I hope that my own measurement will be able to, to say that light pollution is at least not increasing. Uh, but yeah, maybe in a few years, we'll, uh, we'll invite someone from the National Park Service of the United States to come back. Yeah, so they're, they're great guys. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so I hope to, to see them again. Well, thank you for being a guest on the Restoring Darkness podcast, Remy. And if you want to check out Remy's Twitter profile, it's at Remy Boucher. That's R. 
R-E-M-I-B-O-U-C-H-E-R. And his personal photography website is RemyBoucherPhoto.com. And of course, MegantikDarkSky.org. Thanks, folks, for listening. And again, if you're interested in being a co-host to this uh, program or a host, you can apply at info at nail.org. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.